Hi, this is Mike O'Connell, the host of It's All Journalism, reminding you that you can find out more about our podcast by going to our website, itsalljournalism.com. Uh, follow the link there, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter to find out the latest news about our podcast. One note about this week's episode, there's a little clicking noise for the first few minutes of the episode, but if you stick around, that resolves itself. It's a great conversation I have with uh, Baynard Woods, who wrote I Got a Monster with Brandon Soderbergh, and which was adapted into a documentary that you can now view on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. And now, enjoy the episode. And the cops are actually causing much of the crime. The, you know, in one really tragic case, they stole $10,000 from a guy. Uh, the guy couldn't pay a debt. And so they, someone, the person he owed, came up and shot him in the head in front of his daughter. Baynard Woods is an old friend of the podcast. We haven't talked in a couple of years, but Baynard's life has been pretty busy as of late. He's the co-author, along with Brandon Soderberg, of the book I Got a Monster, The Rise and Fall of America's Most Corrupt Police Squad, which many people around the country are familiar with due to the new documentary uh, by the same name. Baynard, welcome back to It's All Journalism. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me back. Yeah, any opportunity to talk with you, you're always a great storyteller. And I think we were just talking about when the last time we spoke to each other, I think it was probably when the book came out, I Got a Monster. It's an incredible book. Yeah, It's so funny. I watched the documentary and I was like, well, how do you summarize this story? Let's sort of start there. What is, let's talk about what the story is and then we'll sort of talk about your investigation and, and what led to the writing of the book. So this had to do with, the most corrupt police squad in the Baltimore uh, city police. The mo one of the most elite squads and the most successful squads also in the Baltimore city police that were bringing in huge numbers of arrests, specifically for guns. Once we switched from the war on drugs to the war on guns, a lot of the same tactics were being used. And what they were actually doing though was robbing drug dealers uh, as well as uh, regular citizens but with the drug dealers, they were stealing the drugs, reselling the drugs. One of the reasons they're so corrupt is they all had their own sort of fences that they were handing drugs off to. And also breaking into people's houses, stealing as much as $100,000 at a time, just huge heists, while also claiming tons of false overtime. Yeah, and, and it's it's incredible. And, and, you know, having read the book and then watching the documentary last night again and it was just like i'd forgotten how crazy this was because it's it you know the the central figure um the the police officer who was sort of running a squad his name wayne jenkins yeah jenkins was i mean he was behaving in ways that just were almost impossible to believe the effort he i mean he, they he was he was almost sort of like a super cop he, he had all he was, he was creating all these great numbers by the nun, by the guns that he was bringing in but that allowed him not only to get a lot of praise from the city police and to keep their, you know, gun numbers high, that helped him to set up this squad that, that was going out and, and robbing people. You know, when did you first, well, I'm going to back this up because the, the first time I think we really spoke was um, your coverage for 
the um, Baltimore city paper of uh, Freddie Gray's death and then the, um, the uprising that came after that. So tell me about that experience and we'll sort of work our way to the, the other one. Yeah, well, and in fact, the other one starts first and leads oh, okay. into it. Brandon and I wrote the book together in part because uh, right when he came to City Paper, I was I was the managing editor. He came on as uh, music and film editor, and rapper here in Baltimore, Young Moose, was being harassed by one of the cops that turned out to be in the Gun Trace Task Force, Daniel Hersel. And what Hersel was doing was using his lyrics as probable calls to and what, what was in a rap video is probable cause to uh, raid his house, which we see happening you know, right now in Georgia with the Rico case against Young Thug and Gunna and a bunch of other rappers there. So that's new using it as to show a conspiracy for murder and other things. But here what they were doing is he was just saying, look, he's got guns and he's on probation. He shouldn't have guns. Yeah. Uh, assuming that the guns were real and all kinds of assumptions for that. And so we started writing about that. Uh, that was about a year before Freddie Gray was killed by the police. And so that really pushed me into covering police even more. Dee Watkins was at the same time writing a story, who's, who's a great writer about Baltimore, about Herschel and Moose as well. So we put out this big package story about that. Two years later, March 2017, eight officers get indicted on RICO charges, conspiracy, extortion, all sorts of the kind of charges that brought down were designed to bring down the mafia. And it turned out that Herschel, who we thought was like the worst of the worst in BPD, was actually just sort of a low-level bruiser, whereas Wayne Jenkins was this crazy criminal mastermind, triple-crossing people. I mean, he was sloppy and wild and insane. There's the funniest part of the movie is a wiretap where two of the cops that worked with him, who also were home invaders, drug dealers and stuff, Gondo and Ram, they're just like, he's off the chain, off the chain, off the chain. I mean, everyone around him was just amazed at what a psychopath this guy was. Yeah, yeah. The one guy who was a, uh, I guess, a bail bondsman uh, who was fencing a lot of this money and stuff, made a lot of money off of him. I mean, you know, he he marveled at the the audacity of of Jenkins, the things that he was doing. To the point, you know, he he eventually turned himself in, I guess. I mean, he kind of had to because they, they had a lot well, of... Well, no, he was arrested. Oh, he didn't oh, yeah. turn himself in. He waited oh, okay. with white knuckles until they came. They, they busted it. Uh, I mean, he had white knuckles, but he was still dealing cocaine. Yeah, so they yeah. busted a, a woman who was leaving his house with cocaine. And then... And they the reason that they got him, they held him in waiting because Jenkins was not going to plead guilty. A bunch of them pled guilty and cooperated. And so they knew they had to get this guy. And it turned out he'd been filming everything, uh, recording everything. So he he turned out to be really valuable to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And what's interesting about it, you, you talk about filming and everything. The, the, what sort of one of the things that uh, has sort of come uh, more prominent in recent years is this idea of uh, uh, for police oversight having body cams. And about a time that a lot of this stuff was going on, you know, Baltimore City Police had were using body cams, and and we, you know, a lot of the, not a lot of, but some of the footage from the documentary is is based on stuff that they, on their own cameras showing, uh, the crimes that they were committing, or at least setting things up so they could commit crimes. Um, yeah, I mean, what's amazing about the whole body camera argument is that there was a moment around that time, 2014, 2015, when progressives were like, body cams are going to save the day. 
You know, they're going to show cops doing dirty stuff. Well, 99% of the time, body cams are terrible for the defendant. Yeah. Uh, but what they were doing before they got body cams even were faking footage. So we have this amazing yeah. footage where they break into a guy's safe, steal $100,000, and then close the safe back and then reenact breaking open the safe <laughs> on camera. They also went and asked the neighbor questions on camera to try to uh, set up the their own timeline of things and really devious, devious use of film. But then when they finally get body cameras, Herschel thinks his is off. He walks up to Gondo and says, it's off. Gondo says, oh, that's good. I wanted to hurt him. They're talking about a guy that they, yeah. and they, they go, oh, let's go to his house. And they break into his house all on camera and we had to sue actually to be able to show the courtroom footage that's in the that's in the movie, and we just won that case after five years in in December. But you can see in the court the attorney Ivan Bates saying, "Look, they broke into my client's house on camera," and both the prosecutor and the judge saying, "Well, that doesn't really matter." And it's just an, a, a stunning thing to see. Yeah. So let's talk about you reporting this. I mean, you said that this, you know, this news came out that they, uh, that all of these uh, police who were involved in this squad uh, were arrested, it was sort of a mass arresting. You know, how did you report this? Where, you know, where did you get the information? Who were you talking to? Well, so the first part of it was easy because uh, they were federally indicted. And so there were indictments. Uh, and then fortunately for us, two of the officers ended up not pleading guilty. So Herschel and Taylor. Uh, so there was a long three, four week trial in which many of the people who ended up being, many of the victims who ended up being in the documentary uh, came to testify in front of the, uh, you know, in this federal case against the officers. There also was another officer in Philadelphia who was involved. Uh, one of the guys here was giving drugs to a Philly cop to sell. Uh, and reading, and he pled not guilty. So he had, well, went through half a trial and then changed his plea halfway through when it looked like, man, you are sunk. They have these text messages and like, it's clear. And and so we were able to get a ton of, of stuff that way. And then the long, you know, normal thing of cultivating sources, Donnie Stepp, the cocaine dealing bail bondsman, he was in the movie. So the other benefit we had was before we even had a deal for the book, I mean, the book came out in 2020, but the film was supposed to come out in 2022, 2020 also. It premiered, it was going to premiere at the Maryland Film Festival, and then COVID shut everything down. And then business things and various other things happened over the next couple of years that made this delay. But um, we were reporting them at the same time. And so... The only way we could really afford to do the book as well, so it's super helpful. Kevin Casanova Abrams, the director, immediately came to town, and we were we sat there with film crews interviewing just tons and tons of people. Uh, a lot of the police and that sort of folks wouldn't talk to me and Brandon, but they would talk to this Hollywood film crew. Uh, so we just would stay out on that, and they would do the interviews with the sort of official talking head types. And then we got the more street level stuff. But it took like with Step, it took months of writing him to get him to finally agree to talk. He still, he wouldn't talk to me and Brandon. He only talked to the director as well because he knew that we knew too much about the case. His lawyers told him this. Right. He strays way off subject. 
and reveals more than he should, which to his endless his lawyer's endless frustration. So they're like, here's the questions you're allowed to ask, and only those guys. These guys will. Uh, but I that was the result of months of me and him talking on the phone, texting, and lots of that building trust over a long, long period of time. Were you using the the one defense attorney as a as a source as well? The defense attorneys really have always been key to my reporting on police at all weeklies, you know, like Baltimore City Paper. We didn't have great relationships with the official agencies. And uh, so we never tried to get access journalism. And, and but what, who we did want access to is victims of police and defendants in cases. And defense attorneys are usually more than happy to talk to some degree or to point you in directions of ways to look. And Ivan Bates ended up being the center, a defense attorney in Baltimore at the time. I'll, I'll get to a big change there in a minute. But he had a number of cases with Jenkins in a row that worked nicely for our timeline, was a big part of it, that there were so many cases, it, we had to find some way that we could narrow it down to a single story. And what we also didn't want to do was use FBI, federal prosecutors as the sort of protagonists that were the cat chasing the mouse in the cat and mouse structure, because the defense attorneys had been screaming about this for years before any of them ever paid notice. So, and he ended up giving a bunch of information to the federal prosecutors. So he became a really useful thread to go through and to limit the number of cases that we focused on, trying to just his or some other major ones. He's since, uh, since the movie was done, he was elected state's attorney, which is district attorney uh, in Maryland parlance here in Baltimore. Uh, so he's now the top prosecutor and is uh, right now advocating for longer sentences for guns and stuff. So his position has changed rather greatly since the movie came out. So it's been a, that's been a strange thing. But the book we dedicated to, to defense attorneys defending the Fourth Amendment, because we have these First Amendment absolutists, Second Amendment absolutists, but we need people to be absolutely opposed to illegal search and seizure of our, our persons. That's our most foundational right. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I think that was the thing that in watching the documentary that just sort of jumped out at me, the the boldness of just like arresting people and then fabricating, um, you know, charges or, or using you know, planting something or, or finding money and then using that as a, an excuse to search their house or, you know, planting drugs and using that uh, as a way to, you know, sort of extort money from them in some way. You know, the fact that they, they, they drive all the way out to Westminster to, to break, basically break into some guy's house who, you know, who, who professed that he had no connection with any, you know, any drugs or anything like that. And it just, you know, the audacity of them. And, but also I think the, the documentary did a good job, I think of showing, you know, the general unrest in, in Baltimore about this, you know, situational, this ongoing sort of abuse of police power. You know, there were a couple of people who talked about, you know, how can somebody get away with this or how, you know, you know, why isn't this person, you know, why is he so obviously doing something that nobody's challenging him? And just, I think that, and then with the timing of Freddie Gray, it's a pretty amazing story. And I'm glad you said, you know, how do you tell this story? I mean, it's such a, a huge story. 
that I, I can't imagine, you know, getting my arms around it, how to, because, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to make sense of it. You've got to, you've got to tell some type of story, you know, how difficult was for, or was it for you guys to, to sort of narrow things and, and, and put it in a, I mean, you could still be writing this book. Yeah, we wanted it to, to read like a thriller. People, the biggest compliment and, and probably the most common compliment that we got was people would read it in a day, wouldn't be able to put it down. We didn't want it to feel like homework. We wanted it to feel people to be compelled to get through it and, and to be, uh, we both are, are very concerned with style and form and stuff like that. So the book we were able to do that, figure that out pretty quickly. The documentary was more complicated because it, for a while it was going to be a five-part Netflix series. <laughs> that deal ended up falling through, but we had shot enough for five parts. So they then say, well, it's a couple weeks, a, couple, a month before South by Southwest deadline. Will you guys come out here and we're going to just cut it into a 90-minute <laughs> movie? So they flew us out and we were literally in the editing bay with the editors figuring out how to cut five hours, you know, material for there was to make five hours of a show into a 90 minute film. And it was it was really tough to make that structure work, partly also because I'm just much more comfortable with prose than, uh, you know, and there's a lot more people involved in a film. And so disagreements and whatever. The amazing thing with the book is Brandon and I had certain once the tone was established in the beginning, the book would kick out anything that didn't belong. It felt like naturally. And so we were free to allow the other one to go explore any tangent. Because if they tried to put it in and it didn't work, it felt like the book itself would just eject it. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, I'm thinking about the the one um, person who was, uh, who'd been in jail uh, who, with the horses. I mean, that seemed to me like that's a like that, that, now that you say that it's a five part series to me, that's like, oh, OK, so there was an episode where they talked about this guy and his horses and and but it doesn't it's not like it's superfluous. It you know, he's important to this story and to, you know, seeing the impact that it has on an individual. But then also at the same time, I mean, we've talked about this before. Baltimore is a remarkable city despite the the terrible things that you know came out in this investigation i mean you know baltimore is a character in this city as well and it's I, it can't help but be uh because of its history you know and and the 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 history of race relations in that city Wait, i mean is that something you think about sometimes oh absolutely i mean it, it we very very much wanted it as much as being about this tragic case to be a love letter to the city in that you know the book was able to focus on the cops a little more. People complained about us a lot. They're like, oh, you never show the police side. It's like, well, now we have a bunch of wiretaps and all this other stuff. We'll show your side more right over their shoulder because uh, we could narrate what they were doing. But the film, we wanted to focus on their victims really heavily and to show the kinds of people whose lives were really messed up and destroyed by, by these cops. And, you know, it's easy for comfortable people to say, oh, well, they were, you know, they were vindicated in the end or whatever. But you know, go spend six months locked up. Go spend, yeah. uh, like that one guy, LeVar, years locked up before. I mean, and so he's an amazing guy, uh, the guy with the horses. So there's a thing in Baltimore called A-Rabbing, which is selling produce from a horse-drawn wagon. LeVar was a, is an A-Rabber, and he, it's the most beautiful footage in the movie when he's get, he gets out after having a gun planted on him. 
And he's telling about it in the B-roll as him riding the horse, but he's also a violence interrupter. And so you're absolutely right. If we would have had more time, we would have gone into that. So he worked for an organization where he would get in the middle of beefs and stop violence. That's what they were like, give us information on this murder um, or we're going to lock you up. And he's like, no, I'm not. It doesn't work if we talk to the cops. So he's just such an amazing Baltimore character. And, And the same with... Yeah, all of the the victims in it, the way that they talk, same with the bail bondsmen and stuff. It's all so Baltimore. Uh, We loved being able to show that. Yeah. And it's not like, you know, a lot of people, their, their vision of Baltimore is, you know, um, is the wire and, you know, okay. But, but this is really kind of the, you see the people in Baltimore and, 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 you know, you mentioned the, uh, the various people who are victims of this, the, the, well, the one woman who's a teacher, I guess, is because she has these cases in her, her school f- file, she can't get a job. So these sort of indignities, these crimes that were, were perpetrated against, you know, these these victims, and they're still, you know, suffering the consequences of it. You know, dedicating the book to the, you know, the defense attorneys, but then also, I mean, there's a lot to be said for you know, this documentary and the way it tells the story, the, the book that you guys wrote, um, you mentioned that, that you sued. What was it you were suing for? In Maryland until December, it was illegal to broadcast footage from a court. So other places, that's odd, you know, because they broadcast the OJ trial 30 years ago now. They, they broadcast the Murdoch trial from South Carolina. But in, in Maryland, they record proceedings and you can go to their court reporters and watch it or listen to it. And they'll give you uh, mostly audio, but occasionally video footage of it. But they say you can't use it. We worked with a Georgetown Constitutional Law Program, uh, Maryland Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, and a number of, of co-plaintiffs and sued the state over the, this on First Amendment grounds. That, that They can't tell you this is public material. Here it is. But you can't do anything with it or you'll get charged with contempt of court. So we won in the Fourth Circuit in federal court. Uh, it went back to give the, the state another chance to respond. They deposed us or, or, you know, we had to provide any emails. We'd ever talked about this stuff, but we finally won in December and the movie coming out now in March. So it was really good timing. Okay. So, and, and that helps your narrative. It helps, I mean, you know, the difference between writing a book and the difference in, in, in presenting something on, you know, in, in, in video, it, it's great if you have video because then it shows this, the people talking and it, it creates, it helps to act out the story as it were. Well, I mean, it, it's also related to the case directly because the way the case happened was because of a lack of transparency. If there had yeah. been more transparency about police then we would be we they wouldn't have been able to get away with all this. It's the ring of invisibility, you know, that, that Plato says, give it to anyone and they'll end up killing the king and, and uh, raping the king's wife. Is, and that's essentially what these cops did. So in the, by by making courts more transparent, uh, seeing when they're talking about the problems that these officers have, being able to show them lying on the stand is a way of, of directly combating what we saw as one of the main causes of the corruption. Yeah, and also the fact that the main guy, Jenkins, didn't, he frequently didn't show up to court. And, and you know, the lawyers coming to understand, well, that's a, that's a way of him admitting that, you know, he didn't show up to court because 
he knew he couldn't answer those questions. And, and I guess that's, that's the key to a lot of this is that he recognized the weak, weaknesses in the system and he exploited them. And there was no, there were supposed to be checks and balances for these things, but there were no checks and balances. And he kind of understood that and he, he, ex, you know, he, he committed all these crimes. He, you know, he arrested people. He, the, the people who, who had no real connection with anything, they sort of just sort of got drawn into it because they were in the, the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, it, it's just an incredible story. And, and, and now people can, you know, I, I watched it on, um, it wasn't Netflix. I think I got it from Apple uh, TV. So, so how can people watch it? And they can watch it on, or do you, or is yeah, that so it's, so it's on Apple, it's on Apple TV and uh, iTunes, uh, which I guess are, you know, essentially the same thing yeah, yeah. and also on Amazon Prime. And it's been, yeah, it's been good. It's been doing really well on those. It's been the number two documentary on, on Apple for the last, since it came out. So yeah, people buy it. It's a big help for us because it helps us be able to make more projects like this. And it is, I mean, what you were just saying is so true. It is really relevant to the rest of the country. And that what happened to Baltimore in 2015, after the uprising with Freddie Gray, this narrative came around that there's a, a spike in crime and yeah. police aren't policing. It's the same thing that happened nationally in 2020. Yeah. And what Jenkins did was exploit that. The idea that no one was policing made the brass desperate for numbers to be able to get guns, to show they were arresting. So he was just breaking the law every night to get guns and was able to, they let him then do anything he wanted. And the cops were actually causing much of the crime. The, you know, in one really tragic case, they stole $10,000 from a guy. Uh, the guy couldn't pay a debt. And so they, someone, the person he owed came up and shot him in the head in front of his daughter. And wow. so like, the, the, and they were robbing people every night. And these things have consequences. That I think, would be a real good case to look into the rise in crime nationwide is how much are police being criminogenic. Yeah. And, and that's something that we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast recently, certainly since the, the Black Lives Matter uh, protests and in sort of this call for, for greater transparency uh, among police, you know, as somebody who, you know, this is part of your toolkit, this is kind of the way you view your reporting and, and crime reporting, you know, what do you, what do you tell journalists? What do you, you know, what would you recommend to them to, to, to sort of like find these types of stories or to cover, you know, police corruption? Talk to public defenders and defense attorneys in general don't wait for the statement from, from headquarters to admit that they did something wrong. The streets are going to know way before the press knows it. And if you start developing sources who are in contact with police um, on a regular basis, meaning in, mo in most places in poorer or in blacker neighborhoods, then you're going to be able to have a much better idea of what's happening with the police than anyone who goes to press conferences uh, and listens to, to the MP FOIA requests are super useful. And then the thing about going to the court reporters to watch uh, court cases is usually when stuff about dirty cops comes up is in the bench conference. So when they say, may we approach your honor? Dun, dun, dun. And they all walk up to the bench and uh, then they have their secret little conference that the jury's not able to hear. Well, all that's recorded. And there's the white noise that keeps us from here and get in the gallery. But if you go to the court reporters, you hear that. And that's when all the stuff about dirty cops come up. And the more we are able to watch that kind of 
footage, then the better off we are at hearing what they don't want us to hear about it. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. You hear something like that, you get to get information from that. How do you report that then? Do you do you take that and then go out and find a source to to substantiate it? Do you do you go to the like defense attorney and say, hey, I understand, you know, X, you know, can you confirm that? Is that well, what's great about it is if it's recorded in that, then it's on the court record. Uh, <laughs> and course. it's, you know, it's the head of, say, the police integrity uh, unit in the state's attorney's office saying this and a, or a defense attorney saying that. And so you have the actual dialogue between them and the official record of it. And then, yeah, you can do FOIA requests to get uh, try to get the documentation for it. Or we have a new law in Maryland, Anton's Law that makes uh, disciplinary files be open. So you, you then know what files to, and the dates and stuff to request from. And also, yeah, you go talk to the victims or other victims. Then you look at cases where the statement of probable cause is similar. And then you see, oh, well, this one they lost in court or uh, never went to court. Let me go try to call that guy. And, uh, you know, and of course, defendants' phone numbers are in their records. So you try to call someone up and you say, hey, did this, Dude, do you dirty? What happened here? And you you try to add to it with similar cases. Okay, so yeah, did doing the footwork, you know, and, and and tying things together. You know, it's amazing documentary. It's amazing book. Since we last spoke, you you had another book published that's kind of fascinating. It's called Inheritance. Can you sort of describe what the book is about? Yeah, the the subtitle is an autobiography of whiteness. And it is a memoir, and it tries to look at the impact that being white has played in my life in a very subjective way, though, rather than a sort of scholarly or academic treatment of it. It's, it's a chronicle of my errors in many ways. And the way that it begins, that it looks at whiteness, as I uncovered that my great-grandfather assassinated a Black County commissioner in 1871, guy named Peter Lemon, my great-grandfather being part of the early wave of Klan terrorism during Reconstruction, trying to overthrow Reconstruction, which they were successful doing, by the way, uh, in 1876 when they stormed. They, they made up reason to claim that they won the election when they hadn't. They stormed the South Carolina State House, a group known as the Red Shirts, all wearing red shirts, stormed the South Carolina State House, and they successfully occupied it, unlike uh, in, in 20. 21 here where they they failed they were following that playbook exactly that people like my great-grandfather had carried out and that was covered up to such an extent the murder uh that he was then called a redeemer um for his role in, in overthrowing it and was uh elected to the state legislature that passed jim crow laws and so i looked at the way that cover-up had created the whiteness that i had inherited and that was my world yeah, it, it's fascinating. And, but, you know, all the things that you said just there, all the, the, the history that you described are, you know, that's invisible to so many people, but it, but the impact that it's had, you know, certainly you, you've identified how you benefited from something that one of your ancestors had done and, and sort of the impact of that, you know, and as you're talking, I'm, I'm remembering, I think really actually the last time we may have spoken was, were you one of those reporters who was swept up um, in the, um, in 20, it would have been 2017 oh, at the, at the, at, at Trump's inauguration. So I, I, we did talk about that. I was, 
I narrowly avoided. Um, I was in the group that was getting kettled. I held up my press pass, and a uh, cop went around me and knocked down the person uh, behind me. But Aaron Contu, a, a reporter with the Santa Fe right. reporter at the time, he he was charged and had to fight it for months and months and months. 235 defendants ultimately were charged in that case, and almost all were, were acquitted. Um, but yeah, we did end up talking about that. Yeah, that was the, um, you know, all these all these people blessed in, or dressed in black, they must be Antifa. They're, they're, they were coming to disrupt Trump's uh, inauguration. And the police were able to take care of that, I guess. So what's next for you? You say that, you know, one of the nice things about the documentary doing well is, you know, more and more money for you to do other types of projects. What are you thinking of working on or what are you working on? Well, I'm, I'm working on a, an investigative police story for the Baltimore Beat. One of the really exciting things here is we have a new nonprofit, Black-staffed and Black-led alternative weekly paper here, the, the Beat. It's in print because uh, one of the things about the city is at any given time between 25 and 40 percent of the people don't have regular access to Internet. And so it's important that it's in print. And so I'd been working with a younger reporter on a, a story, sort of training uh, her up and she got a different job. And so I ended up, I'm taking over the story about a, a police shooting that happened about a year ago here. So I'm, I'm deep in that right now. So that's sort of in my, but there's a couple different TV and documentary uh, things going on. I've been doing some magazine work for Oxford American. It, mm. There's a, there's a lot of, it's kind of nice actually. Inheritance really, the writing of it was very, very intense. My dad was dying of ALS. Um, when I was writing it, and he's also a main character in it, um, and we were greatly at odds. So be, our being at odds is sort of one of the narrative dynamics of it. And like, I got a monster. I tried to write it so it reads really fast and, uh, you know, exciting kind of read. But And I wrote it very, very quickly. After a year, my editor was like, this draft is no good. Uh, and my editor, she's great. And to my, you know, Krishan uh, Trotman just spectacular and she's like you got a couple of weeks to bring me back some some new pages and so it it really wiped me out and then this film has taken a long time so i'm really enjoying doing some uh newspaper and magazine stuff Send, working on some tv things but the way that works is it may never come to fruition at all some more documentary things but they may never happen so it's kind of fun to be involved in a bunch of little smaller things just a just a lot of effort and, and i can i can see that where knowing who you are and your your personality i think just being able it's like going out and fishing or or going out and drinking cool water that it's an op, you know opportunity to refresh yourself uh getting back to your roots uh Boehner, thanks for coming on the podcast again you're always a it's always great to hear what you're doing and again i did this you know the documentary is just great the book is great haven't read inheritance yet i have it but and, and I do want to read it, and I will <laughs> read it. But I, I encourage people to check check out the uh, documentary if you haven't. You know, it says a lot of things about you know good journalism, but also just you know fighting for things that are right, um, and how important it is to be dogged about it. And, and certainly, that's something that you uh, and Brandon were in covering that story. Well, thanks so much for the podcast too. It's such a uh, service to you know to the journalism community especially the the alternative uh yeah and smaller and stuff not the daily paper kind of thing so i'm really grateful for your work as well Mike. yeah yeah no we had we had lisa snowden on when the the paper returned 
it's great to see that. And for the very same reasons that you said is that, you know, there, there are a lot of people in that community that, that need the news. And uh, so having something in print is great. But, and she's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Take care. All right. Thanks so much. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.